Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts and friends, Hannah Abrams and Tony Brew. How are you both doing in Boston this evening? It's warm. The weather just got beautiful, yeah. I'm like already sweating, and we just started. <laughs> Tony, you're too acclimated to Boston. <laughs> well, why don't we jump into the episode? So what are we going to be discussing tonight, Tony? All right, so we're going to talk about one of my favorite things, the uh, BUN to creatinine ratio. So this is one of those things that I love pointing out on rounds, like when this ratio is altered, because I feel like it generates an interesting differential diagnosis, and you get to talk about all sorts of different mechanisms. And one of the most common causes of, a, uh, of an elevated B1 to creatinine ratio I see is an upper gastrointestinal bleed. And so way back in 2019, Adam Rodman wrote a really great tutorial on this topic, where he made the case for volume depletion being at least a main, if not the main mechanism of an elevation in this ratio. But then a few months ago, Bill Aird wrote a post on his website, The Blood Project, and it really made me want to re-explore this topic because he kind of like went back to some of the original uh, explanations that I had heard about. I love that website. Before we get into the exact mechanism, maybe we should talk a little bit through some history. How far back are we going tonight, Tony? Uh, so we're going to start in 1912. Because back in 1912, the idea that something other than kidney injury might lead to elevations in the BUN, that's when it was kind of first identified. And it was in infants uh, with cholera. And at that time, the entity was called extra-renal azotemia. Now, I think here in 2023, we can probably say they were pre-renal, but you can't see that histologically under the microscope. And so they said, oh, wow, these patients have increases in their you know, urea and their BUN. There's nothing going on in the kidney. This is, quote unquote, extra renal. And then if you fast forward a couple of decades, in 1933, the aptly named L.V. Sanguinetti, he was the first to note that a GI bleed more specifically is associated with an elevation in the BUN. And then over the next two decades, we really saw kind of the golden age of experimentation on this question. And there were literally dozens of studies. And they were done with sort of the singular goal of identifying the cause of an elevation in the BUN. Okay. So I'm trying to think back to the decades of the 30s and 40s and maybe 50s and thinking about what kinds of studies they might have been doing. I'm guessing there was observational. It was probably, you know, looking at like what happens to the BUN and creatinine and various types of bleeding, maybe some animal studies. But like, what would a human study look like to try to sort this out? So maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but apparently a century ago, there was a great enthusiasm to ask people to drink their blood and see what happens. In the name of science, of course, right? All in the name of science, yeah. <laughs> If only they knew that they could have drunk H. pylori and won a Nobel. It was so exactly. close. That's such a good point. Nobody won a Nobel as a result of this work. And that includes Leon Schiff, who is like one of the big people. If you read these studies, like Leon Schiff's name comes up over and over and over again. The, and the head of the, the blood science research arm. Pretty much. And maybe we should sort of do a writing campaign for a posthumous uh, Nobel for all the work that he did. And it kind of began back in the 30s, and he did all these experiments. And one of the first sets of experiments was published in 1939 in the American Journal of Digestive Diseases. And what he and his co-experimenters did is uh, they took uh, in one set of experiments 15 participants, and they fed them blood that was three weeks old, because apparently they said at three weeks, it's too old for transfusion, but not too old to give to you. And then they examined how the BUN changed based on the amount of blood that was administered and also the site of administration. 
So riddle me this, Tony, was this their own blood or this was like other blood that was in a blood bank and just wasn't transfusable? No. I mean, best I can tell from the methods, this was blood that was sitting in the refrigerator in the blood bank. You know, they went down and said to the pathologist, hey, you got any old blood I can use? And and here it was. Hey, this is the three week old blood. <laughs> it's all yours. Oh, that's that's a, that's incredible. So did, <laughs> did they see a dose response like based on the blood given, like more blood, more BUN? I mean, maybe unsurprisingly, they did. So when they gave 250 mLs of blood, and they did this actually via an orogastric tube, they saw a very small rise in the BUN. And then as they increased the quote-unquote dose of blood from 500 to 1,000 to 2,000 mLs, they saw an even greater rise in BUN. And just to confirm, the participants weren't bleeding themselves or GI bleeding themselves. No, no. So not in this set of experiments. But, you know, Leon Schiff was a pioneer and, you know, he also identified this separate set of patients who had had episodes of hematemesis and noted that their BUN increased. And he was like, well, this is an interesting opportunity here. Once they stabilized, he then gave them two liters of blood via OG tube. And it was like the graphs for this are fascinating because the BUN rise is almost in parallel when you give two liters of blood via OG to what he saw in the hematemesis, it was, it's like perfectly sort of in line with each other. Okay. So, you know, it does sound like if you're going to give somebody blood and they're not bleeding and the BUN goes up, then it, it, it sounds like the loss of blood itself isn't necessary to increase BUN, right? But in the modern day, that is the context in which we see this, right? This right. clinical effects is we're not feeding people blood anymore, thankfully. So- I'm curious, like, do we have any experiments, you know, looking at, you know, perhaps like an experimental bleed or something like that, that that was induced? Yeah. I mean, most of the experiments don't have experimental bleeds. It's just here, let me give you some blood. But I did find a set of studies by Captain I.J. Greenblatt of the U.S. Army. And these studies were published in 1946. And so Greenblatt and other military officers underwent phlebotomy and had either 580 or 800 mLs of their own blood drawn. They then drank that blood with 100 mLs of water, and they were given 30 minutes to do it. You will all be maybe relieved to know they could also have peppermint candy, a smoke, and some water over the next few hours as their BONs were repeatedly checked. And you also may have some solace in knowing that the authors tell us that for the participants, the, quote, psychic trauma was non-existent, whatever that means. Yeah, it's reassuring. So <laughs> what, did, uh, what, did, what did they find in this classic experiment? Uh, so the BUN didn't increase that much with 580 cc's of blood removed and ingested, but it did increase with 800. But what's interesting is if you compare it to the sort of changes seen in the shift studies, the loss of blood didn't seem to exaggerate the rise in BUN. Like that was not necessary to see an increase. You just needed to put the blood into the person's stomach. So summing all of that up, it sounds like we have a variety of experiments in which various quantities of blood were either ingested or otherwise inserted into the stomach. And then most of these seem to increase the BUN, particularly in a dose-dependent fashion as more blood is administered. So you mentioned that Schiff put some blood elsewhere. Did Where did he put it? And did the BUN increase with that too? 
So he put it into the jejunum and upper ilium, and he also put it into the colon. So when the blood was put into the jejunum and upper ilium, he saw a rise in the BUN, but a smaller rise than what was seen when it was put into the stomach. And then after colonic administration, they saw no rise whatsoever. That really does seem to support the idea that the increase in BUN to creatinine is a phenomenon of upper GI bleeding. But now seems like a good time for us to come to the mechanism. So earlier you mentioned that Adam Rodman had tweeted tutorial about volume depletion, but these experiments seem to show that giving blood even without deplete, volume depleting the patient also increased the UN a little bit too. So where, what was your alternate hypothesis? So it's, it's you know not mine, um, but uh, so we'll we'll definitely get there. You know, I'll say ultimately, as with everything, it's it's multifactorial, right? But I do think there's something specific about the placement of blood into the stomach or the upper small bowel that leads to some of these changes. But either fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your love of the urea cycle, in order for us to understand, we do have to talk about why the body generates urea and sort of what is happening with all that. But before we do that, um, let's first hear from this episode's sponsor, Green Chef. Green Chef is a meal kit company whose goal is to make eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. One of the most challenging things about being a resident sometimes is when you're in a full day of primary care clinic and you are spending all day counseling people on how to eat healthier and all these strategies and smart goals to try and improve their health by eating better. And then you're so busy and stressed during lunchtime that you just eat a a protein bar and then get back to work. And so one of the things that I really liked about Green Chef, I made one of their 10-minute lunches. And so each week they give you two convenient, nutritious lunch recipes that you can make actually in 10 minutes. I'm kind of slow, so it took me about 15, but with pretty minimal cooking and was just amazing for being on the go and in the middle of a busy primary care day. You know, and I took advantage of the dinner meal plan and I got to say all the recipes I made were delicious, easy to make. Uh, I think my favorite was the chicken with garlic charred rice. It was awesome. And Green Chef can reduce your food waste by up to 38% versus grocery shopping. And that was kind of my experience. And Green Chef offers options for every lifestyle. Keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, and even gluten-free. So go to greenchef.com slash curious60 and use code curious60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash curious60. 60 and use code curious60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. And now back to the episode. Okay, and we're back. So we're going to talk about urea now, um, which is a byproduct of, of protein metabolism, say after a delicious meal, right, Tony? That's right. You can, you know, Hannah and Avi can see the enormous smile on my face because he said we're going to be talking about urea. All right. So most of us know that when proteins are ingested, they are degraded to amino acids. And this is done by gastric and pancreatic peptidases and by brush butter enzymes. These amino acids are then transported into proximal small bowel enterocytes and then ultimately into the blood. Urea, we love this stuff, huh, Tony? Oh, God, that was so bad. (laughs) All right. So the proximal small bowel is the site of amino acid absorption. Does that explain why upper GI bleeds see more of a rise in BUN? I, yeah, I think that it does. There may be other reasons that help to explain it, but I think the site of absorption of the amino acids is a big one. You know, After they're absorbed, they're metabolized into nitrogen products and carbon products. 
the carbon products are either stored or used to generate ATP, and the nitrogen products are converted to ammonia. This ammonia is then funneled into the aptly named urea cycle, the byproduct of which is, of course, urea. So, recapping. During an upper GI bleed, blood protein is digested into amino acids, which are then absorbed by the proximal small bowel. The amino acids are then metabolized first to ammonia and then to urea. And so, if that's the case, what is the blood protein that we're metabolizing? You know, I, we often talk about albumin as being the most common protein in the blood. I, I mean, I say that all the time. But it's not quite right. You know, it is the most plentiful protein in the plasma or the serum, but if you look at the whole blood, there is another protein that is significantly more plentiful. I'll just ask Hannah, because this is like going to be your life in a few short months. What do you think that protein is? Oh, all right. Well, it can't be basophils. <laughs> not CAR T. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hemoglobin? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, it is hemoglobin. And I think it's valuable to think about units because it, it kind of helps you think about the order of magnitude. So a normal albumin is four grams uh, per liter of plasma, and a normal hemoglobin is about 15 grams per deciliter, which is 150 grams per liter. So you know, hemoglobin is about 30 to 40 times more abundant in whole blood than is albumin. And is one of them larger than the other? Like, is one of them providing more amino acids? No, and actually, amazingly enough, we've talked about this before. Way back in episode 55, we talked about a pigment nephropathy. And during that episode, I mentioned that both hemoglobin and albumin have a molecular weight of about 68 kilodaltons. And that's because they both have basically the exact same number of amino acids. Hemoglobin has 574 and albumin has 585. So with all this in mind, I'm actually going to pose a question to the two of you. I want you to assume someone has a hemoglobin of 15 and has a like a one liter upper GI bleed, all of which is absorbed into their body. I know that probably is not unlikely to happen. So the question is, how many amino acids have they absorbed from that hemoglobin? Any guesses? We, maybe uh, Avi, I'll ask you first, and then we'll give Hannah the either the over the over or under. Yeah, so carry the two. I'm going to say eighty five thousand. Hannah? I did some like atrociously back of the envelope math and then decided that I get, would give up somewhere around like deciding how many Daltons were going to be in like uh, for, <laughs> or how many amino acids there were. I don't know. Anyway, uh, a million. So there's five trillion RBCs in a liter of blood, just RBCs. And then there's 260 million hemoglobins in every single RBC. And then I mentioned there's 574 amino acids per hemoglobin. So if you do the math, it's 700 sextillion, <laughs> which is 7 times 10 to the 23rd. So we're off, obviously. So you're off yeah. by uh, just a little bit. <laughs> so is that like more like atoms than like there are in the node? <laughs> I mean, it's one you know, of those. Like, like it's, such a, you know. it's such an enormous <laughs> number. I mean, the idea that there's 5 trillion RBCs in a, in a liter of blood is just an insane to imagine. It's, it's, it's incomprehensible. Okay, that's a lot of amino acids. We were both way off. Myself more so than Hannah. Okay, so, and but all of those, what did you say was sextillion? 700 sextillion. Sextillion. <laughs> um, that can be used to generate urea. Is there anything special about the amino acids, like specifically within hemoglobin, that would lead to a rise in BUN as opposed to other types of protein? 
you know, until um, I came across Bill Laird's post about this topic, I assumed it was simply the amount of protein contained within a GI bleed, like basically how much blood, and not really the makeup of the protein that mattered. And we'll come back to maybe the amount of protein a little bit later. But, I, you know, the reality is it hemoglobin probably is unique. And so I think we have to look at um, one of the characteristics of hemoglobin as a protein. And that characteristic is that it's considered to be a, a protein that has, quote unquote, low biologic value. Again, not a concept I came across until a few months ago when Bill Aird wrote this post. And so I'm curious if this is something you, either of you have heard about. I keep thinking about how disappointed my high school biology teacher is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Bernard. It Bernardson. seems like you would have high biologic value. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So um, th- this concept is the idea that um, uh, biological value is the proportion of an absorbed protein that is incorporated into other proteins of an organism's body, right? If a protein gets absorbed and it gets like shuttled into making like muscles, high biological value. If it gets absorbed and it gets just degraded into, you know, ATP and urea, low biological value. And amino acid content is really the main determinant of the biological value of a protein. And, and more importantly, proteins that lack an essential amino acid have low biological value. Ah, so essential biologic amino acids, or essential amino acids are the ones that we can't synthesize on our own, right? That's exactly right. So if hemoglobin is a protein with low biologic value, it must be lacking an essential amino acid. Which one does it lack, or does it lack multiple? So it lacks isoleucine. So of the 574 amino acids in hemoglobin, zero are isoleucine. So even though in a you know a liter of blood there may be 700 sextillion amino acids, exactly zero are isoleucine. And so as a result of this, some have argued that this results in an inability for the body to use that hemoglobin protein to make other proteins because most of them are going to require some isoleucines. Um, and what that means then is that the hemoglobin is more likely to generate urea. And kind of tying this together are some really cool studies showing that a stimulated GI bleed leads to decreased protein synthesis. And even cooler, you can mitigate this um, decrease in protein synthesis if you just infuse isoleucine, if you just give them back the protein they are lacking. That, that's really amazing. But I, you know, I feel like we've spent the whole episode talking about BUN, right? But we really, what we're talking about, like, is the BUN cranion ratio, um, is, you know, is increasing. So, I mean, are you saying that upper GI bleeds don't affect creatinine? Because for some reason, creatinine happened to go down, that ratio could still go up, right? Yeah, I mean, we usually spend most of our time talking about creatinine, not BUN. So this is this is a little bit odd. But yeah, the creatinine is relatively unaffected. And that's because creatinine is generated exclusively from the metabolism of muscle protein. And if you ingest you know, blood, there's no muscle protein in there. So when you ingest um, blood or have an upper GI bleed and you're reabsorbing you know, albumin and hemoglobin, you're going to see a rise in BUN, but the creatinine should really be unaffected. And that leads to, of course, a rise in the ratio. This is awesome. Um, before we close, you mentioned something about the amount of protein contained in a liter of blood. Is that significant compared to a normal protein meal, say a delicious green chef meal? So this is something that um, uh, Adam Rodman talks about in his tutorial. And I think it depends a lot on what you consider normal. So if we go back to um, the pioneer, Leon Schiff, in his 1939 study, he also had a separate set of experiments where he gave participants 1.8 kilograms of lean beef steak. 
and, of course, monitored their BUN. So he saw an increase in BUN that matched what was seen with a two-liter blood meal. Two-liter, um, yeah, so two liters of, of blood. And I'll be honest, other studies of steak have showed similar results. So 1.8 kilograms, like h- how much is that with respect to like, you know, like a dinner plate of, with a steak on it? I mean, that's the, the key question, of course. So a normal steak is about 10 ounces, depending on like what you consider normal, and contains about 70 grams of protein. Schiff gave about 350 grams of protein. So he basically gave these people five steaks. So, you know, I guess one way of thinking about it is if you had a five-steak dinner and had your BUN checked, you are likely to see a rise in the BUN to creatinine ratio. Think about that before you get your, your blood checked. It was the steaks. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry, Doc. It's the steaks. There, uh, there's like just so many take-homes that I feel like I'm going to ruminate on the next time I'm eating a steak <laughs> and or like taking care of anyone with a GI bleed. The last thing that it does make me also really wonder is like, what is the evolutionary value of hemoglobin not containing isoleucine and sort of being able to be synthesized without yeah, it? Yeah, I tried to, to look into this and I couldn't find out, is there something about the lack of isoleucine? And I, I didn't, I couldn't see anything, but it's a kind of a fascinating question. I think it's just an anomaly. Isolute hemoglobin. Um, Tony, do you have any take-home points for us? Yes. So uh, number one, clearly the 1930s were the heyday of let's make this person ingest blood and see what happens. Maybe more importantly for our listeners, um, these data from the 30s and beyond, they show that absorption of hemoglobin from a a bleed does lead to an increase in BUN. And this is a result of the absorption of the amino acids contained within that hemoglobin and the metabolism of them to urea. And because creatinine is not affected by the absorption of blood proteins like hemoglobin, that value does not change in an upper GI bleed. And the result, of course, is an increase in the BUN to creatinine ratio. So next time you see that ratio on rounds, just say 700 sextillion. We were so off, Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. Physicians and healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits from VCU Health just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and neither constitutes medical nor dietary advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.